Hello, everybody. Hi, guys. Hi, everyone. You probably wonder who this wonderful voice is sitting next to us. Very quickly, he is an actor, a writer, a singer. I didn't realize you've been researching. Oh, yeah we, yeah, we do the work Google's over Google's a powerful here. thing, my friend. He is also a classical text and monologue coach and associate artist at Bard City. He's performed with the Royal Shakespeare Company and the West End and has been most recently seen off-Broadway in the show Puffs and with Rude Grooms in The Changeling. Please give a very warm welcome to Mr. Harry Waller. How Hi, you doing, everyone. man? Yeah, hey, Harry. Good. Thanks for being on the show. Thank, well, thanks for having me, of course. That, that was really impressive because you listed all of that stuff without anything written down. Always ready. I'm going to go check on the mac and cheese. So I didn't get to make it out to the Troilus and Cressida mm-hmm. intensive that you did. So you guys did an act a day. Yeah, it's um, so we call it Shakespeare in a week. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Owen's been doing these for a while. Uh, he did one last year at Classic Stage Company, um, which was Anthony and Cleopatra. And yeah, we stage it in a week. So Monday to Friday, you will stage an act. Mm-hmm. And then we run the act at the end of the day. But actually, it's kind of amazing how much detail and clarity of storytelling people are able to get to in that short space of time. Do you think that the shorter window of time lends itself to finding that clarity or has it been like a challenge to get there because you have well, a smaller window? It's definitely a challenge and there are and there's always going to be moments where you're like, ah, you know, with another week. It, it's really helpful that Owen is such a good director because he comes in with a very strong viewpoint on on the play. So were there people in that group doing Shakespeare for the first time? No, I think everyone had done it before, but there was definitely varying levels of experience. So I think like in that context, having Owen as a very like specific mm-hmm. guiding hand is helpful. And how did you and how did you and Owen start working together? I, when I moved here, he he came over here um, for a while uh, to live and we obviously had lots of mutual friends who were like oh well you've got to meet up and hang out and so we did and it turned out that he was doing a, a thing with the RSC in New York a d- sort of development developmental um, thing um, and got me involved in that and that didn't happen until you were both here in New yeah, York yeah yeah randomly cause which is like, crazy because we have so many mutual friends and we were in Stratford I think at the same time, roughly, because when I was doing, I was doing Wendy and Peter Pan there, and I think he was just finishing up doing Henry V. So you've been in New York for, since when? Uh, April 2017. April 2017. So mm-hmm. just like over two years or so yeah. now. And yeah, yeah. then you, so you obviously like worked in England before that? Yeah, I, uh, yeah, for, for quite a while, I guess. Did you did you start years, did you start working years. like right away after you graduated? Had you been working uh, before that or uh, pretty much? Uh, yeah, I got my first kind of what I consider to be like formative gig within like six months. What was it? It was a, a musical called Saturday Night by Sondheim, and it was the UK premiere of wow. the, the. So he he wrote that when he was like twenty three. 
and it never made it to Broadway. It was supposed to, but the producer died when it was out of town. Hmm. And um, so it lost its money and it didn't didn't make it. And it, it they did, they had done it as like a reading in the 90s, I think, in London. But it was, the book was kind of all over the place. And so from that reading, I think Sondheim went, oh, there's maybe some potential in this. Uh, I'll rewrite it a bit. And he wrote some new songs for it. And they did it off Broadway. And then we were the, I guess, the first production in the UK. What was that? What was that experience like? It was good, but it was very, it, like, it sounds more fancy than it was. It was very, like, small scale. Um, most people, most of us were just out of drama school. Mm-hmm. But it was it was wonderful, really. That, honestly, that's, like, one of the places where I've probably made some of the best friends that I've had have you always been a musical theatre person? I didn't train in musical theatre. I did what I guess you'd call like a classical acting course mm. uh, at Rose Bruford. Um, but I was always musical. And I'd always done musicals growing up because that was kind of what was on offer. Mm. And I, I actually, at that point, I was signed with a, a, a musical theatre agent. Because I think when I got out of college, I was like, oh, that's maybe that's where I'll find work. And then it just happened that my career kind of completely went away from that. That was pretty much the only musical I've done. I mean, I've done a lot of shows that have music in them. Oh, that's not fair. No, I have done a couple of like little little musicals. I've, I've used music a lot in my career, I would and say. And so where did the switch come from, from this sort of musically inclined track to getting into classic work? Well, I'd always done classic stuff as well. We did classical stuff at drama school and uh, and actually my f- my first gig out of drama school was a production of Romeo and Juliet, a small-scale touring production. And so- Who and were you? I was Ben Volio. Oh, um, awesome. That's who you'd cast me. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what I would still apply for. Like, if right. was, you know, yeah, yeah. For now, until I'm old enough to be Lady Capulet. Yes, um, of course. But uh, I would pay some money to see like, a lady see. For real, though. What? Make it happen, Monty. <laughs> we can just do it again next year. Yeah, right? we can just, just, we'll just do a Romeo uh, and Juliet every summer. I feel like summer. it wouldn't go down well, you know. No, maybe, maybe. I played Regan last year in King Lear. Mm, Did you really? I love Regan. Oh, how f- that must have been something else. It was great. That was really exciting. Because, I, I, you know, when you're like, I never thought I'd get to play that part. Yeah. Yeah, it was lovely. It was with the Shakespeare Forum. Um, but didn't... Everyone kind of play everyone, isn't that what you were saying? No, we all had specific. Oh, just shouted. No, uh, no, we, <laughs> we all uh, we all had specific parts that we played, but there was no one King Lear. Everybody played Lear, ah. so we all had one part, um, and then we at different points we would become Lear. So I had, I was really lucky. I got the storm scene. Yes. Oh my god, which is quite fun. So I got to like, I got to shut him out of our house, and then go into the storm scene. Oh my god. Uh, which was quite a quite a journey. Yeah, it was that was fun. So you were you started working after school and you yeah. were like working consistently well, from there. I mean consistent. I mean yeah, as, as much as consistent as anybody is. Sure. I, yeah, I, I had I had regular gigs. You had regular yeah, you had regular gigs and then um that was right ar- right up until the time that you moved here in 2017 yeah so i actually i had just closed oh, the happiest time probably that i would say the happiest time of my life probably apart from obviously marrying my husband and all of that um but uh the i i was really lucky to do um a couple of shows at the rsc which then 18 months after we'd done them in stratford transferred to the west end um and uh, I was just a, a minor player. I was Balthazar in Much Ado. 
uh, and I, I was a footman uh, in Love Savers Lost and understudied um, Longerville. Uh, but it was just joyful. What made it so wonderful? Both those shows were directed by a director called Christopher Luscombe, who I so good. He's amazing. Who I've worked with a number of times. He actually gave me my first equity job in the UK, uh, which was a tour of the History Boys, which I understudied on. And then he took it out the following year and cast me as a kind of principal. Then I've worked with him subsequently, I think, four times. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got in at the RSC, really, is because of him. How many UK actors' first big breaks came from a production of History Boys? I mean, it's like you just I mean, look at the list of people from that show. And yeah, it actually, this was not the National Theatre production. It was the first professional non-national theatre production. It was West Yorkshire Playhouse Theatre Royal Bath co-production. Ah. Um, so Chris totally restaged it. He did a new cut. It was great. It was a really beautiful show. Now talking about all these things, I'm like, I'm so lucky. <laughs> like getting to do, you know, and to work. And also like, I've been so lucky with these companies that I worked with that were just full of great people, like really kind, wonderful people. Because mm -hmm. um, that's not always the way. Chris in particular is a complete legend. I would not have had a career or at least anywhere, anywhere. I wouldn't have achieved half of the things that I can now be like, yeah, I did that without his belief in me or like his wanting to work with me and like re-employing me and recommending me for things. And it's just so, I mean, No Gwyn, which he directed at the Globe is mm -hmm. absolutely in my top five favorite shows I've ever seen, if not at the top of those five. Uh-huh, yeah, he's, He's a bit of, a, especially with comedy, he's a bit of a genius, I think. He's incredibly specific mm -hmm. about, uh, particularly like visually specific. I think that's why he works, especially for comedy, because his attention to, to visual detail and to like rhythmic beats of comedy mm -hmm. is, is amazing. And which is especially works for Shakespearean comedy, like his Love Savers Lost that, that we did. It was, it was really quite sublime, I think. Is that on tape? Can you read yeah, that? it's the, oh, R the RSCs. It's they have it down as Love Savers Lost and Love Savers One. Oh right, um, Love Savers yeah, One yeah. is just much ado about nothing, but they titled <laughs> it that way because yeah. they were set in the same place basically. So they did them as companion pieces. They they shared the same cast. They shared a lot of the same set. They were basically they were bracketed on both sides of the First World War. So Love Savers Lost ended with the boys all going off to the First World War. We then, part of that season, we then did a new play set in the First World War about the Christmas truce of 1914. And then we came back to the same house for Much Ado About Nothing. And we had, a, it was the winter of 1918. Oh. And the soldiers are coming back from the oh, war. Oh, wow. And so was the idea that Baroon is Benedict it, and Rosalind is Beatrice. It was double cast in that way. Um, it no, the idea wasn't that it was that they are the same characters. I think the way Chris described it was that it was like trying to find the echoes in those characters because there are a lot of similarities. Oh yeah, um, and well, I, like the prototypes, right? Yeah, exactly. And and I think like it did just tie together really beautifully that that idea of you know um, I know you of old and all of that stuff just had such a different resonance when you'd. And especially because you could come and see a matinee of Love Savers Lost and then stay and see the evening production. Oh, of, that's of so cool. It was kind of cool. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So then you close that show yeah. and then 
came three to, three weeks later or something. Three wow. weeks. What? That's a huge. That's a ridiculous turnaround. Yeah, it was so. Mental. What brought you stateside? Well, I was in a long distance relationship for four and a half years. Wow. So we met in London. He was uh, he'd studied there, done an MA uh, at Central School of Speech and Drama, and then he was on a graduate visa. Uh, when we met and uh, we were together for like nine months in London and then his visa ran out and uh, he had to move back here and we uh, we did the long distance thing for a long time and then at some point we were like no we need to we need to be in the same place now and it made more sense for me at that point to come here did you investigate (laughs) like the legal process both ways? Is one easier than the other? Not massively. I haven't actually really investigated the other way. I think it's possibly harder going that way. Um, I think there's harder financial. Uh, the UK is quite specific about how much money that I would need to be earning hmm. in order to support my partner. Now, were you like, were you planning a wedding while you were long distance or did you get here and you were just like, you know what we should do? We should just go ahead and get married. <clears throat> no, well, we, I, I was on a fiance visa, so we knew we had to get married really soon. We'd, we'd worked out the date um, because obviously we had a, some family coming over from the UK, but it was it was a very very small wedding. It was like twenty five people, mm-hmm. um, and we did it in Prospect Park. And, oh, that's uh, lovely. Our, Where our, underneath, you know, on the south side of the park, there's like this. It's sort of a mock ancient Greek yes um, shelter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's yeah. Got those pillars and it's, yeah. it's quite it's quite pretty. You just booked to have the space, so it was like twenty five dollar permit. Right. You know, there was absolutely nothing provided, obviously, because they're just like, yeah, you can have that space. And it's there's no privacy. So, like, we had, like, two guys setting up, a bon- uh, like, a barbecue next next to us. We had another guy, like, leaning on his bike watching us as we were as we were getting married. It was nice. I was like, that's, that's kind of that's what That's actually kind of lovely. Yeah, right? Yeah. The whole park is your guest list, kind of. Yeah. 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 And, like, we did, you know, we did have a big party back in London a year later mm-hmm. to be like, oh, you know, for those who couldn't make it. Right. Um, it was kind of perfect, exactly. And it was because it was small, because there was so much stress involved in, like, moving countries oh, anyway, that, like, having something that was quite easy to organize was... I'm sure like a load off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so how has it been for you since coming here to New York versus working in the UK? Honestly, it's been really interesting. I've been uh, and and difficult and mm-hmm. I've basically had to learn a whole new industry. There were words that I did not understand. Like what? Like, like people would be talking about EPAs when I first got here. Oh, I right. Was like, what is an EPA? Like we, there's such. It's a very, very different industry here, and and the rules are very different, and the way things work are very different. I mean, in the UK, we have equity, but it's an open shop. In terms of like, you can be non-equity. You can be like someone who's not signed up to equity, and then have like the top acting gig at the National Theatre, mm-hmm. and not be a member. You'll have someone like come around and knock on your door and say like we really think that you should sign up and become a member of equity. It would be really great if you would. Um, but you don't, you have no obligation to. I mean, it, I, th- I believe everyone should. Um, that's my two cents. But like, you don't have to because mm-hmm. it's an open shop, which I think I believe would be different here, right? Like, Oh, yeah. You well, wouldn't be able to There'd be no pressure a- on you. So America's just so complicated and messed up. In certain states, it's that way because there's what's called a right-to-work law. So in those states, a union can't punish an employer for hiring a non-union employee. Mm-hmm. So what that means is like, let's say Texas, 
is a right to work state. So you could have a non-union actor playing the lead role in a Broadway bound musical at the Dallas Theater Center. Mm -hmm. But if that musical then left Dallas and came to New York, which is not a right to work state, then if the producers hired that actor and that actor refused to join the union, the employer would not be allowed to hire them or they'd have the contract pulled. Yeah. Because in New York, you are allowed to require people to right. hire. Right, yeah. It's really different. It's so different because also in, in the UK, if you're a member of equity, you can take whatever work you want and you won't get punished for it. I, so when I first got here, because of my, my, I had a work permit, but I didn't have a green card, equity took a while to let me become a member. Ah. And so I was like a non-equity actor trying to find right. work. Right. Um, but not really, yeah, it's very it's complicated as you, as I'm sure you guys will know. Um, because I had to wait for my green card to come, which came earlier right. this year. Mm -hmm. I was in a show um, on, on a contract that wasn't an equity contract at the time. So I had to, um, leave that show in order to join equity um, because, yeah. It's just so wow. unnecessarily complicated. Well, you know, I don't, I'm very, very, very pleased to be a member of the union now. And like, I believe in unions and like, and I do have an appreciation for the fact that equity looks after people and advocates for the workers. Being very lucky and privileged to be a member of both UK and US equity like mm -hmm. you are. One of the things that shocked me going the other direction was in this country, there are such barriers to joining actors' equity. I, either you get hired at a big union house and they want you so bad that they offer you an equity contract and then you can pay up and you can join. Mm -hmm. But for most actors, you work non-union. So an EPA, which for the non-actors or non-US residents out there is an equity principal audition. The required auditions that equity theaters have to have so that there's a way for actors without agents or who don't have a pre-existing relationship with the theater to be seen. But if you're non-union, the odds of getting seen at an EPA are next to zero. I guess it depends on the theater and the production, right? It depends how how many equity members are wanting to go up for that particular open call. Did you ever go to EPAs when you were non-union? No. I, 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 uh, I, didn't, I couldn't put myself through it. As, as, the, as the resident non-union person <laughs> on this discussion, it is, uh, it really is a roll of the dice, man. Like there have, been some, there have been some EPAs that I've gone to where they will say, you know, just hang out and we will we will try to get you all in when we can and some of them are really good about it mm -hmm. particularly if you get there early enough and then there are some EPAs where they will tell you up front like it'll be listed as an EPA but then you get there and they're just like we're not seeing any non-union they're people. not required to see non-union yeah. even if half the appointments are filled they don't have to see non-union This is true, members. yeah. They're I've, only required to see equity members. I've been to some EPAs where you'll get there, like you'll see the breakdown and like you'll put time aside in your schedule and you get there. You try to get there early, make sure that all your stuff is is lined up the way that it's supposed to be and they will tell you as soon as you arrive, we're not seeing any non-union people today. We're not gonna, we're not gonna do it. And then there's the opposite, which I think is 
the most brutal option where you sit there mm-hmm. for an entire day. It's essentially like, it's, a, it's akin in my mind to jury duty. The one time I've got called up oh for jury duty. Oh my God, it's so similar. <laughs> the one time I got called in for jury duty was very reminiscent. I like got major EPA vibes or like major EPA flashbacks <laughs> because you sit there for the whole day. And then they come out and they say, sorry guys, we've, we don't have any space. At the end of the day though. But ha- well, having said that, I, do, I, I know some non-union actors who have gone to EPAs and got gigs out of it. Oh, for sure. And it's like, and that is like exactly how that thing should happen. And it's entirely different to the UK. In what way? There's no such thing as an EPA. We, we, have, we don't hold open calls. Like um, maybe occasionally the Lion King or like if they're looking for something very specific or I think sometimes it's about like, you know, a sort of publicity drive to like marketing the show to get people excited about like mm-hmm. you could be in such and such a show. But in the UK, it's the auditions are entirely based on are entirely appointment based. There is no such thing as a turn up and wait to see if you can get in. Really. I've never experienced that. Do most people leave drama school with an agent? No. I mean, that's the idea is that you would go to drama school and get an agent. The year that I went to drama school, I mean, I think we were quite unlucky because it was 2008 and it was the uh, year of the crash and everything. Mm-hmm. But like, like a lot of people didn't like half, like, yeah, probably about, I think about half of us got agents. Um, and it's really tough if you don't have an agent in the UK. Are there are there breakdown service like breakdown are, services akin to like backstage we, and actors' access? We have access? like a UK backstage. I I think I don't think that was around when I first started, so I I don't know what that's like. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I th- I think it's just the same as what it is here. We don't have actors' access. We have a thing called Spotlight, which all professional actors in the UK are members of. But a lot of the things, or at least my memory of those services is that it's mostly low paying or like small scale independent work and obviously like that's how a lot of people get their foot in the door is like scouring those and getting meeting someone and then that person whatever or like getting getting a show off west end or like fringe that you can invite an agent to but like Re, like none of the big houses like the national any 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 of the big houses that do like equity paying high high level work do open calls you would you would need to have an agent pretty much unless you were like were very lucky with like they were looking for something very specific and you happened to write in for it or you met the casting director at something and they you know it's like it's a much more closed industry in that mm. way but in but also the benefit of that once you're if you have an in like if you have an agent or whatever is it's much less saturated yeah there's more of a direct pathway to getting your in or getting your foot in the door. Mm-hmm. But if you are not, if you sort of miss that train, it becomes exponentially harder to do so. Yeah. Whereas here, I feel like there's a problem with the illusion of having so many options. Right. Because it's like you can go to an EPA, yeah. you can look at backstage, you can look at Playbill, you can look at Actors Access. And like technically, theoretically speaking, you're always one audition away from like from your breakout whatever mm-hmm. yeah. you know which can be very alluring i know for like in my own experience the conversations that i've had with people who are not familiar with this industry is it's just like well you know you just got to go to one and eventually you know you'll get discovered and that'll be how it takes off i'm just but like yeah there are 
like thousands and thousands and thousands of people yeah. trying to do it. And like, I, I feel like in some ways it's brilliant because there is like a, like a, a level of openness that mm-hmm. you don't have to have gone to a top drama school in order to, and you, if you're great, if you're really good and you go in for some, something at EPA and somebody sees you and likes you, there's a potential that you could get a really great gig without having necessarily gone to Juilliard. However, that saturation of the industry yeah. and that and that illusion of openness yeah. or whatever means that you have like all levels of experience, ability, commitment to the career applying for the same job whereas in the uk if you had like gone and studied something completely different and had never done a a professional job in your life you're probably not going to get seen by the rsc um for any audition they're probably going to expect that you've done done some stuff before you go to them that's not to be like to poo poo the rsc or anything but like that's just how it works like it's hard it's hard to get into that top level of work unless your cv demonstrates that you have like some chops you've got to you've got to be credentialed in some way in some way yeah 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 the best that ever happened i got a couple of jobs from epa's small jobs Mm -hmm. um and then i got to the point of being on hold for the breakfast at tiffany's on broadway a couple of years ago from an epa Mm -hmm. so that's pretty cool right but I was already a, I was already an equity member here, which is why I was able to get seen for that show. I probably mm-hmm. wouldn't have not have gotten seen had I been non-union. I already had a ton of regional credits at that point. Mm-hmm. I think equity is extraordinary in their advocacy for actors, and I think having EPAs, if nothing else, there is the chance. And the, the thing that I really have had experience from EPAs was assistants who are in the room liking the work and then calling me in for their small or low paid or unpaid mm-hmm. thing. But that builds a relationship. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it is, it is absolutely a venue to build new relationships. But I do, th- what, you, what you said, the, the, the illusion of openness. Maybe, uh, maybe that was too strong. I no, but like- I, th- I think that is correct because it is not, if you're a plumber, you're not walking into an EPA. And if you do, you're probably not being considered mm-hmm. even if you're, extraordinary right in that but you scene. can take up that space do you right. know what i mean the fact that it is open means that literally anybody can go in for that it's such a tricky conversation i think because i i'm at once like really impressed by that openness mm. and also like incredibly frustrated by how many people sure. are trying to do the same job you know yeah. and like you know Fair enough. Like, you know, who's to say that I should be doing it? You know, we're all like, every, you know, right. do you know what I mean? Like, every, like everyone has the the right to be going for work and to be trying to make a career for themselves. Mm-hmm. But it is, I, I think, coming from the industry that I'm used to, I'm overwhelmed, I think, is probably the word, by how many people I am up against at every job. Really? Like, for every oh, job. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, because in in London, I could go up for a job and be like 10 other guys that are getting seen for this and like if it's especially if it's like looking for like a particular thing i can be like well of those guys i might be like one of the three right that Mm -hmm. like actually have the skill set for this job you know or whatever whereas here it's like i might be up against like 100 500 500 yeah. yeah exactly and you're like well how am i gonna make myself stand out from that crowd i don't know so how has that like has it affected your resolve because i know like for us 
that's the environment, at least for me anyway, I'm just, you grow up being used to that. Mm-hmm. Like even when I was a kid and auditioning for things in Florida, you show up and it's just like, there are at minimum, at least a few dozen other people in the room. And some of them are very similar to you. Some of them are entirely different. Mm-hmm. Even with auditioning for colleges here, you know, I remember my NYU audition was on the whatever floor of some studio space and it was like it looked essentially like an open call it was essentially oh, yeah. yeah it was essentially it was like sure. yeah it was like an open call that day and then you get in and it's still like 500 people in a year or something. oh my god yeah you get like you get into the program and it's like everybody from all walks of life and so then you're looking at all of these people and then it's all the people that you saw before that but what i think is interesting about that is it sort of shapes your resolve to be like okay you're here so is everybody else. Mm. You have to, so you got to know for yourself, what is it that you bring to the table that like then nobody else does? And you just got to like, you got to rely on that. Yeah. You've got to be so confident though, right? Like you've got to have such self-belief here in a, in a way that like, I, I, don't, I don't think you necessarily, I look at how it worked for me and I'm like, I went to drama school and obviously like I, you know, there was like, I think, 2,000 people or something who went up for my drama school and like 25 of us got in, you know? So like, that is like hard odds when you're 19 or whatever. But like, once you've done that, I, that sometimes show that I got, the musical director had seen me in my final show at drama school. I, you know, I had an agent at that point and I got that show, you know, and then like, I know that like other jobs that I got, I was recommended for by someone, you know, who'd done, who'd seen me do something or who'd worked with me. And then, and then I ended up working with the same director a number of times. So although I felt like I was working very hard to make ins, I think like a lot of that was sort of beyond my control anyway. You and I have also talked about like just the length of an audition in the UK and right? how it's much longer so, and more luxurious. Wait, okay, how different. so? Cause I'm not familiar with okay, this. Okay, so because it's like all by appointment you go in for a play you have like at probably at least 10 minutes if not like sometimes 15 20 you'll walk in the director will say hey come have a seat uh you sit down with them you chat about like what you've been up to the last six months or like you're there like oh you've worked with so and so or oh i oh i actually saw that show like tell me about that they'll ask you about they want to know about you so it's almost like an actual job interview yeah in some ways yeah and then they'll like ask you about the play like what was your take on the play like what what do you think about the character and then they'll be like do you want to read like would you like to read and then like you know and then you oh it's very much like a job interview that that's fascinating. Yeah, and then you get up and you do and you read or you or you, or you sit, sit down and yeah. you read. You know, it's not like there's no obligation necessary to even get out of your seat really? and show them what you've done. Like it yeah, yeah. It's I mean, obviously I think like <laughs> that helps. Um but like <laughs> but like here, it's like you come in and you're like you've prepared two sides and they're gonna see one. And they might see one and they're like and they're like, okay, uh, which side are you going to do f- today? And you're like, you know, you walk in and they're like, hi, Harry, wh- what side are you going to do? Oh, I'm going to do the second side. Okay, great. And you, and you do it and then they're like, thank you. Or they might redirect you. But it's like much more like about the product. Yeah, about what they're seeing. Mm-hmm. As opposed to like, I think the idea in the UK is like, I want to get a sense of what you're like to work with. Interesting. Which I mean, our, our audition process is largely built on the experiences I had auditioning either 
in the audition for the Globe that was, and that one was, I think it was 45 minutes. We were on Skype, so it was different and we had to be seated, but it was like, it was just the most amazing. And then a couple of experiences I've had here at the public with British directors, they still bring that methodology with them. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it's like, sit for 25 minutes and again, don't stand up. Don't stand up when you're doing the signs. You just sit we, at the table. You sometimes can, you know, but I think people will see that as like, oh, He's making an exciting choice. He's making a choice. He, he to stood sit up. In. Yeah. He stood up. Oh, he got out of his seat. Oh, how exciting. What a, what a renegade. <laughs> definitely standing up next time now. One of the things that we heard a lot from casting directors, in particular when we were at Atlantic, if you do not get a callback or if you don't get the part, et cetera, et cetera, don't take it personal. They're looking for something very specific and you could give a great audition. You just may not be right for the thing, but you absolutely cannot take it personal. Is there that sort of same attitude or sentiment in the UK as well? Yeah, I think the I think like that would be the advice. It's the same thing. You're you know, you're always that's the thing about acting, isn't it? Your work is you. Yep. Yeah. You, no matter how much you want to try and separate it, you are putting something of yourself out there. You can't see the work that you're making. You're just doing what you instinctually what you think is right mm -hmm. and um and that's quite a vulnerable place to be and a very personal place to be and so i think it is hard to to take that lesson but i do think yeah i've i've definitely heard that in the uk okay and when i work with students i'm having been on the other side of the table a couple of times our conversations in the room were so different from what I imagined them to be when I when I'm auditioning for something. We auditioned for a show that I wrote earlier this year. It was so interesting how we had some brilliant actresses come in, and it was our conversations weren't about necessarily about how how brilliant they were. It was like, well, I I think you know this this actor's energy is a bit more like clean and this actor's energy is a bit more messy and we we're kind of looking for a bit more of a messy energy from the character we had the very very lucky problem like particularly for being such a young company with romeo and juliet this year of having just so many extraordinary actors yes. that, we, and that we wanted to cast but i mean we ended up putting an extra track in the show mm -hmm. even like mm -hmm. but at no point for us was it height or hair color or yeah i don't i don't even really know what it boiled down to when i, it, I think it's like when we did Leah at Shakespeare Forum, I know Sybil talked a lot about en the energy that someone brings to an audition. And she casts, not thinking about like anything to do with like how they look or like what their gender identity is or right. whatever. It's what is the energy of this person? What's the like aura that this person brings? Mm -hmm. And like what character do I want that energy to fit into? I think that at least for me that was the guiding force in a lot of the in a lot of the audition room for Romeo and Juliet was like what kind of energy is this person bringing into the room are they open to collaboration are they open to experimenting and playing or are they coming in with like I have rehearsed this thing I will do this thing this exact way I will right. listen to your note but then I will go back and do the exact same but thing But those actors didn't make it to callbacks I'm talking about like callbacks everyone's great we want yeah. to hire them all oh okay yeah, yeah, yeah no i was i was even talking about even from the first time in the room because you know one of the we would give people before they would give their audition we would tell them we are an interactive company we mm -hmm. usually perform outdoors for live audiences so 
we interact with and engage the audience. So like, feel free to use us, feel free to break the fourth wall and just like make the space your own. And there were some people who took that note beautifully. And then there were some people who were just like, nope, audition technique says, I must not look at you. I must look like right above your head or in a different which direction. Which is also fine, right? Which that, is fine. Because what that says to us is you don't want to do that type of theater, which right. is fine. Yeah, but it's also It's like, totally fine. Like, it might not even be that. It might also be that it's like, you know, auditioning is hard. And yeah. like often right. people are very nervous. Yeah. And like they might really want to buy into that. But like for whatever reason in that moment, they're not able to. And right. you might have got, you might if you had cast them, who knows, you might have got them into a rehearsal room and been like, oh, that worked out brilliantly and we didn't even know it would. I know I've gone into rooms and done dreadful things or like really misrepresented myself. Right. Like in terms of like what I can do or, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, just based on the chemistry of that moment or the, you know, and I think like auditioning is a weird thing. Well, going back to what you said <laughs> about the oversaturation of New York, I feel like that's a difference, right? Because even for us at small, small showcase level, we're doing three full days of auditions and filling those appointments. And there are enough people who can take a note and instantly right. do it. Uh -huh. There's no incentive to see the actors who can't. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So then how do you, how do you move into that position if you don't ever get the second chance? And I guess it really is just like, like, you know, doing, doing one night shows here and there and like mm. going to the next audition and trying to be a little more nimble. Yeah, taking, I mean, what I think is amazing about the culture here is taking class. That is a thing that you also do nowadays, is that right? I do, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I've been doing that for a while. Um, and um, I do a lot of helping people with grad school auditions um, and like working on particular auditions that they've got coming up. What would you say, if any, are some of the the most prevalent reoccurring themes that you see in terms of like what people need help with. I'm often trying to get clients to focus on just connecting with the text mm. and just like investing in that scene, you know, because monologues are a scene, even though there's like no scene partner. I, I, I feel like what, what I do a lot of is trying to like unlock the need to for perfection mm. in order to obtain that malleability that you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. we're you know, if you if you are just about like, well, I want to craft it so that at this point I do this really beautiful thing with my hand, and at this point I raise my voice a little or whatever, then you're not being organic and it would get tired very quickly. And I think, yeah, a lot of what I do is about allowing people to feel confident in just like engaging with in the organically in the moment harry thanks so much for coming in tell hey, everybody where me. of course tell everybody where they can find and follow you so i have a website which is it's harrywaller.com very self-aggrandizing <laughs> but uh, i mean it is hey it's listen. true but it is it is harry waller it's it it is. Um, uh, or it's, do you belong to it? Uh, yeah, it, yeah, exactly. I'm, yeah, I am my own. Anyway, uh, and then I'm on all the social medias. Yeah. Oh, oh and you can follow Bard City uh, on Facebook. Uh, Fantastic. Just search Bard City, and we're doing workshops and things. Sorry, are when you... is the next Shakespeare in a week? Do you know? We're talking about the spring. It's Ooh. not been decided yet. So wait, you're so just to be clear. You're on all of the socials at it's Harry Waller or 
Oh, at um, Harry underscore Waller. Yes. Underscore on oh my gosh. Yes, that's it. That's me. Okay. It's, I, all the underscores. I just want to make sure people know, so that after they hear this, they can be like, "He was lovely." Where can I find out everything about him and what he's doing well, in the that's world? Where I am. There we go. Easily findable. <laughs> And thank you all so much for joining us for episode three of This Would Know. This week, we are going to try something brand new. And Daniel and I are each going to share with you a recommendation that we have this week. This could be something that we are watching, reading, listening to that we think if you enjoy this, you might also enjoy. So Daniel, this week, what are, what are you jabbing on? This week, I am really into a Netflix original show, Living With Yourself. It stars Paul Rudd and Ashling B. Oh, I saw the trailer for this. It's really entertaining. I, I enjoy it a lot. I found Ashling B's stand-up on YouTube just falling down a stand-up comedy rabbit hole. And I think she's really smart and really funny. As much as I love Paul Rudd, I really just tuned into the show for her. And I finished the whole series at this point. I thought it was I thought it was really entertaining. It satisfies a lot of my sci-fi nerd brain um because it i'm not giving anything away here because it talks about this in the trailer about cloning and alternate versions of yourself and the quote-unquote best version of yourself oh i didn't realize that's what it was i thought it was basically like us with paul rudd oh no 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 No, if you want like the full trailer on netflix goes into this idea that like there's there's a circumstance that in that results in like a clone of himself that is the quote unquote best version of himself and the the hijinks that ensue when they're both existing and trying to navigate two people around a single shared life whether that is personal professional or otherwise and I'm having finished the whole show now, I thought it was a really interesting idea. I'm curious to see what is going to happen with a second season, which I believe has already been greenlit. So I'm really interested to see what happens there and how they continue because they left things on a really interesting, a really interesting point in the finale. Well, I mean, if for the, if for the second season they need a, a younger, better Paul Rudd, I mean, I am available. <laughs> So hashtag cast Monty and living with yourself. We'll yeah. find a shorter hashtag. But yeah, living with yourself on Netflix. I living just, with Monty self? Living with Monty self. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, living with yourself on Netflix. Awesome. Well, now that I finished The Mandalorian, I will definitely be jumping on there that train. There it is. Mine this week is another podcast. This one is called Knowing Robin Williams. It's an eight-part podcast that tracks Robin Williams' life from being a, a young boy growing up outside of Detroit until the very end. And mm. Robin Williams' death sent me on a downward spiral that I think, f- honestly, like I think is just ending as of like a few days ago. Mm. There's a whole kind of series of events. Like he's gone, my grandfather's gone, uh, who also suffered from a different form of dementia and he was much older, but like two kind of big, like how can these zeitgeists be gone from the mm-hmm. world? But this show manages, and of course it gets there and deals with all the complications of the end when you finally get to that point. But what I love about it the most is it illuminates not just the kind of like firecracker, best, most beautiful bright spots of his life, not just the complicated alcohol, drug abuse, cheating aspects of his life, 
not just the ending, not just the narcissism, not just the generosity. It's, it's one of the most well-rounded portraits I think I've experienced of, of a human. And of course, I think that's one of, it's an extraordinarily well-rounded, well, maybe well-rounded is the wrong word, but very rounded human. And I found it so delightful to revisit moments, so exciting to discover new moments that I had somehow missed, and so cathartic to go on that journey again with a bit more perspective and a little more distance. And it was, uh, if you're a fan of Robin Williams, I, I literally cannot recommend anything more highly. Uh, but even if you're not, I think this really tracks so many shifts in American entertainment and culture and gives some really interesting insights into, into our own industry that kind of inspired me after being very, very kind of depressed and cynical about it for, for several years. So that's my recommendation for this week. We also, this week, Amber Elby tweeted at us uh, based on our first episode. My husband is having a full-on conversation with at the Daniel Kipper and at Montgomery Sato about Jedi Fallen Order while listening to this wooden O. To be clear, Monty and Daniel pre-recorded the podcast in November. My husband is in the car with me now. Mr. Amber Elby, if you're listening, I'd be really curious to hear... Number one, if you finished Fallen Order yet. And number two, what you thought about the game as a whole, and uh, in particular about the ending. So at us on Twitter, or at me on Twitter, because I don't know, have you finished Fallen Order yet? No. Okay. We, so you then, can't spoiler me. Can you use like a private thing? Yeah, DM me. There we go. Don't at me, DM me. I will definitely finish it by November 2021. Okay. And then we can talk about the ending. Cool. It just takes me a while. I'm not very good with the... The clicking and the joysticks. The thumbs. Yeah. yeah. My thumbs are not my best quality. <laughs> we also this week have a new supporter on Patreon, and her name is Joan Etheridge. She is my great aunt, and she is great, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, you're all welcome for that. I, th I think I saw all of the prequel Star Wars movies for the first time with her. I definitely saw all of the theatrical re-releases of the original trilogy with her. Mm -hmm. And I definitely saw Phantom Menace on the first day with her. And we w went to go see Rise of Skywalker on Christmas. Oh, that's really sweet. Anyway, that is it for this week. If you have any comments on this week's episode or an episode that's come before or an episode you'd like to hear in the future, please reach out to us on Twitter or Insta at RudeGrooms at ThisWouldn'tKnow. Shoot us an email to ThisWouldn'tKnow at RudeGrooms.com. Or if you want... You can record an audio. Send it there. Maybe we'll play it. Who knows? We'll more than likely definitely play it because I think that'd be super cool. <laughs> right? <laughs> I didn't even tell Daniel I was going to say you could do that. No, but as soon as I heard it, I'm like, no, I'm on board with that. I'll co-sign that 100%. Awesome. Great. Then I will not edit that part out. So do it. <laughs> and that, I think, is going to wrap it up. Thank you all so much for tuning in to the latest episode of This Wouldn't Owe. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at the Daniel Kemper talk about self-aggrandizing. I'm Monty. You can find me on Twitter at Montgomery Sutto because my name is too damn long, and on Instagram at Montgomery Sutton because Instagram is lovely and likes me more. Can I check? Is this the wooden O? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The table. The yeah. Table. No. We. we if have... you're listening, <laughs> join us on Patreon and you can see what Harry sees. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then tell all your friends so that we can come and take the show to your city. And I will make a pledge right now. If we go on the road, we're bringing this wooden. The o. table, the wooden O travels with us. <laughs> it's so, not called any wooden O. It's, it's called this, this wooden, wooden o. o. We're not just it's coming in. I'm not rolling into like Saskatchewan and just getting a random table from an antique when store. When we record no. our episode at the Globe, this table will be center stage. 
at the globe. There will be a What's wooden happening? O inside the wooden O. It'll be so meta. It's going to break the universe. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's episode of This Wooden O, hosted and produced by Daniel Kemper and Montgomery Sutton. Original music is by Kara Arena. This Wooden O is brought to you by Rude Grooms, a Queens, New York-based theater company creating epically intimate theatrical experiences in public spaces, non-traditional venues, and new media. Learn more at rudegrooms.com or follow us on social media at Rude Grooms and at This Wooden O.